Hello, and welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. On January 23rd, tens of thousands of Venezuelans took to the streets, showing their support for Juan Guaido and their opposition to Nicolas Maduro. The words usurper and rebel have been tossed back and forth. Who are these two rival leaders of Venezuela? How did the once affluent nation fall this far? And is Juan Guaido the best hope for a new dawn in Venezuela? Danny Bahar joins us now to answer these questions. Danny is a Venezuelan and Israeli economist currently serving as a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution and as an associate at Harvard Center for International Development. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Let's start with a question that is usually pretty easy to answer about a country, but I think a lot of people are wondering right now about Venezuela. Who's in charge? That is a great question and a very complicated one. Indeed, Venezuela has two presidents, uh, one that is legitimate and one that is not, that is holding on to power. So the legitimate one is, to be frank, um, so far uh, not very powerful. And the illegitimate one, which is the former president, He's actually holding on to power. He's sitting in the presidential palace and he controls the armed forces. And those are, of course, Juan Guaido and Nicolas Maduro. Can you tell us a bit more about each of those people? Right. And I will also um, explain to you a little bit the context of why there are so-called two presidents uh, while I explain about each one of them. Terrific. Um, Nicolas Maduro was the successor of Hugo Chavez. When Hugo Chavez um, he was reelected in 2012, Chavez, but then he, he was ill and he left the country for treatment and uh, he put in charge his vice president at the time, which was Nicolas Maduro. A few months later, after Chavez left the country in treatment, it was announced that he died. Um, and then Nicolas Maduro took, as vice president, he took power as the president. Then he was actually elected as president in 2013 for a term, a presidential term that ended on January 10th of 2019. That means just a few weeks ago. And that election was seen as a legitimate election? Well, to me, that's the core of the whole argument and, and the whole problem. So that, that election that happened in May 2018 was not free, was not fair. Um, it's not only about the fact that People voted for candidate A and candidate B came out. It's, I mean, to, for an election to be free and fair, it goes beyond the election day. It's much more about what's happening all around the election. So this was an election like any other election in Venezuela in the past 20 years where the government used all of its machinery to um, use propaganda. It used social programs to buy votes, basically, um, meaning that it conditioned uh, the social programs to the very poor um, on people going to vote for their party. Um, so uh, it was not considered free and fair. It was not considered free and fair uh, in advance by the opposition who decided we're not even going to participate in this election. Uh, we're not going to actually play along with this fake democracy. So the opposition didn't even go uh, and they called the people not to vote. And actually that election is one of the ones that had the largest abstention rates 
and a presidential election in Venezuela. So actually, for the people of Venezuela, they also didn't recognize these elections as free and fair. They didn't even go vote. I think when a lot of us in America often think of like what a rigged election looks like, we think about those dictators for life who routinely get, you know, 97, 98 percent of the vote because it doesn't ultimately matter who people are casting their ballots for. The government is going to put out, you know, whatever results they want. But what you're saying is that actually, even if the balloting was accurately counted and reported, the fact that you know, I'm getting around to a question here, but the fact that perhaps the press, the media is state run and maybe, you know, I don't know, but the military was in the streets on election day and these social programs that you talked about were conditioned upon um, who you voted for, that that could lead to just as unfair or or rigged a result as, you know, an actually totally fraudulent ballot count. Right. And, you know, it might well be and you know, it's very hard to understand because the numbers are not publicly available or many numbers are not there. It's it's very hard or, or there was no legitimate international observation. So we don't even know if the counting was fair. So but let's even assume that it was fair, which I think is a huge assumption, which I don't believe it was, meaning that they probably did some votes shifting from one side to another even though there was only one side. <laughs> um, there were other candidates that were not aligned with most of the opposition. But you're right. I mean, there are numerous facts that are not arguable that made these elections not free and not fair. For instance, most candidates that are very well popular within the opposition were banned from running for office. Some of them are simply banned. Some of them are in jail. Some of them are exiled. Uh, Venezuela has a lot of political prisoners. Some political parties were also banned from participating. So, so yes, an election, to be free and fair, it's not only about election day, but it's all everything that is happening, happening around it. And, and the case of, of the election that happened in Venezuela in May of 2018, where Maduro proclaimed, was proclaimed as winner, it was not recognized as a free election, as a legitimate election. Now, I think that one of the reasons, perhaps, why a lot of people thought that there was no way that Maduro could have won fairly in 2018 is because... In his first term, Venezuela, which was already not in great shape after you know years of Hugo Chavez, that Venezuela was really in dire economic straits. That you know people were starving. I heard reference to the Maduro diet is something that people would kind of tongue in cheek refer to. In that Venezuelans had lost just incredible amounts of weight because they literally couldn't afford food with all of the hyperinflation and issues like that. And so you know one would think that it would be a kick the bums out situation where the people would totally want to change leadership. You know how did Venezuela get there? Well, I mean, you're right, and I'll answer your question with some facts, but you're right in, you know, the the, the first measure that points to the fact that Maduro, you know, it doesn't have the legitimacy that should raise our eyebrows about that election is that, you know, even if you look at service, the popularity of Maduro um, back then must be much lower, was no more than 20%. So that already raises an eyebrow, like, how can this guy win if he's, like, very, very unpopular? Back then, and as you said, the Venezuela is immersed in a huge economic crisis. It's, it's actually an, a humanitarian crisis. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. There's not enough food on the shelves. There's not enough medicines. People are, as you said, losing weight. Actually, 75% of Venezuelans have lost, on average, 20 pounds. Wow. I mean, that's a crazy amount. Um, there are people who are dying from completely preventable diseases. I mean, there are people who have diabetes, and they just there's no insulin. Um, 
There's people who need um, to perform dialysis because they have some renal illness, and uh, indeed they cannot do it, and they, you know, there's it's a sentence to death basically. Um, you know, child mortality and maternal mortality, which are um, very accurate measures of of the overall health system, have gone up dramatically. Um, child mortality in particular, because you know a child is usually born very healthy, and that has risen dramatically. So. So Venezuela is immersed in a humanitarian crisis. And the last fact that actually shows this for people that are wary that this is as bad as I'm saying is the refugee crisis. There are 3.3 million Venezuelans, at least, that have left the country, that have fled the country in the past three years. Wow. If this trend keeps continuing, and I, I worked a lot on, on, on this in particular, um, the Venezuelan refugee crisis will surpass Syria. Wow. Um, which is, of course, the, the, the one of the largest refugee crises that the world has seen, definitely in, in the past decade. So there is a huge humanitarian crisis, and there's no way, as you say, that administration is popular uh, when uh, they basically brought down a country that once was the richest country in Latin America. Today is among the worst performing countries. The GDP, or the gross domestic product of Venezuela, which is the measure that economies use to measure everything that is produced in the economy, has dropped by 50% in the past five years. So it's a very deep recession, a humanitarian crisis, a refugee crisis, uh, where people are fleeing for their lives. And in fact, just to add one more fact, Venezuela remains the country that has the world's largest reserves of oil. So even with oil not being what it once was in terms of the price per barrel, it's still shocking that it could be so challenged economically. So all of that brings us to today. And at the beginning of our conversation, Danny, you made what I'll term as two bold claims. The first was that Maduro was illegitimate. And the second is that Juan Guaido is, in fact, the legitimate president, although he doesn't have that much power as of yet. Can you tell us who Juan Guaido is and how it is that he is the legitimate president of Venezuela? Sure. Juan Guaido is a member of the National Assembly of Venezuela. The current National Assembly was elected in 2015. Um, Those also were not completely fair and free elections. Um, But in spite of that, in spite of having a huge governmental machinery that was pushing for their candidates, um, the opposition won by a landslide. Um, They won two-thirds of the seats in the National Assembly. That was the very first, you know, win by a landslide that the opposition has had in 15 years since Chavez rose to power. But since then, because a National Assembly with two-thirds actually holds a lot of power, they can do things such as changing the Constitution or, you know, putting a lot of pressure on the executive. Maduro used all kinds of ways to nullify uh, whatever comes out of the Assembly using the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court in Venezuela, um, you know, is completely controlled by Maduro and, and his inner circle. Um, I, I don't have the data in front of me, but if we were to look at how many cases, for instance, against the government have been lost by the government in the Supreme Court, I think the number would be zero in the past 20 years. So that tells you a little bit about how biased is the Supreme Court. So the story up to today is that there's a National Assembly that has been thriving, even though it's been powerless, because everything that they've been doing, the Supreme Court has been nullifying. But then when the term of Maduro officially ended in January 10th of 2019, Um, there was a big enigma. What's going to happen afterwards? A lot of countries said they didn't recognize the election. 
um, then the Venezuelan people didn't recognize the election. So it means that on January 10th, there's no president-elect. There's nobody to be sworn in into office. So Juan Guaidó, um, in early this year, in, in the first days of January, he assumed the presidency of the National Assembly. Why was he the figure? Well, it was basically part of an agreement between all the opposition parties that they will rotate the presidency of the National Assembly. That's like the Speaker of the House in the U.S. Juan Guaidó was, until then, relatively an unknown person. I mean, he's a public servant. He's 35-year-old. He's been very active in politics, but he wasn't among the ones, these political leaders that had a lot of presence in media, in social media, and so on, until then. But he has come out as a figure that has been able to do something that the Venezuelan opposition didn't have until now, which is somebody that was able to unify the opposition behind somebody who's new. I mean, the, the, the idea that he came out of nowhere, I'm not trying to minimize him by no means, but the idea that very few people know him and he came out, he's, he's like a new face that people really put a lot of trust in him. So just to finish the thought, um, the story is that once he was the president of the National Assembly and January 10th came, which is the beginning of a new term, and there's no president-elect, there is an article in the Venezuelan constitution, by the way, a constitution that was designed by Chavez in 1999, which states very clearly, this is Article 233, that if the time comes when there is a new term for president and there is no president-elect, then it is the role of the president of the National Assembly, in this case Juan Guaidó, to become the interim president of the country until new elections are called and a new president is elect. And that's the route that the National Assembly, under the leadership of Juan Guaidó, decided to take. And that's why today he's recognized as the interim president of Venezuela. Now, there are a number of critics of this move, including several U.S. congressmen, who have said that, you know, what are you talking about? There were elections. There is a president, Nicolas Maduro, and they've said that this is a coup or is undemocratic. What would you say to those people? Look, I discussed with some of these people on Twitter. Um, uh, I, I was uh, brave enough to try to engage uh, with, with some of them. Um, I did not enjoy some of them. Actually, uh, were not very nice to me back, even though I tried to engage in a on Twitter. Imagine that. Yeah, can you believe it? <laughs> but um, I would say this. You know, I'm I'm very conscious that. A lot of very well-meaning people among the American people know that there is a history of intervention of the U.S. in affairs of other countries in the past few decades. And perhaps especially in Latin America. Especially in Latin America. And, and I know that they're worried, and I know that this sounds bad. I mean, the administration decides to recognize this guy who's 35 years old, who was in the assembly, but then he says he's the president, and... It, it sounds bad, but it's very complex. And, and, and I don't think that this is one of those cases of interventionism for many reasons. First, it's not only the U.S. Actually, it's most countries in the region, in the same neighborhood of Venezuela, that have recognized Guaido. It's the U.S., it's Canada. In Latin America, you have Argentina, Brazil, Ecuador, Chile, Colombia, Paraguay, Panama, you name it. Uh, Mexico, except uh, notably, they didn't, um, and it's because in their new government, they have an ideological uh, link to, to Maduro. But they also didn't praise it very much. They said that they want a dialogue to solve the issue. So this is not the U.S. This is the international community. On Saturday, this past Saturday, there was a discussion about this in the Security Council of the U.N. For the first time, they discussed Venezuela. And everybody in the Security Council acknowledged the crisis. 
So there is something going on and there is a space for the international community. Second, civilians don't make coups, right? It's the military who create coups. That's why you call them military coups. So um, there's no troops on the ground from any other country in the world on Venezuela right now. What there is, is a Venezuelan opposition that is acting according to the constitution that Chavez himself designed in a way that makes a lot of sense. We don't believe the elections were legitimate and there is no president-elect. And then, you know, the president of the National Assembly that was elected by the people in 2015 is the one who should take over the interim president. So what I'm just trying to tell you is that it's much more complex than that. I know that it's more sexy to say this is interventionism, but it's not. Um, It's more complicated. The Venezuelan people have shown vast support for what's happening on the ground. And I think that the international community actually has, for the first time, they are standing with the people of Venezuela who are looking to restore democracy and freedom. I'm glad that you raised the military in your last answer, because I think that the military is kind of at the center of a lot of this because of their decision thus far, as I understand it, to stick by Maduro. And should the military say, we support the National Assembly, we are loyal to Guaido's leadership, that that would basically be the end of things. But unless and until that happens, Juan Guaido will remain kind of this shadow president without much power. Do you think that that's something that might happen? That's a million-dollar question, right? I mean, all all the eyes of the world are on the military, or the eyes of the Venezuelans, first and foremost, are on their military. And the eyes of the world are on the military, too. Um, And I want to be very clear here for our audience. When we say the military have an important say here, it's not because we're asking for a coup. By no means. I mean, nobody here wants violence, by no means. We're actually asking for their constitutional duty to make the constitution be respected and to bring back democracy and constitutional order. That is their duty. So we're asking them to do what they are meant to do, because what has happened in the military until today by the Chavez government and then Maduro is, to be frank, 20 years of ideological indoctrination. Um, It is not okay when the military of a country who's supposed to be neutral and not affiliated with any party they claim that they are Chavistas, right, which is the adjective we, people use in Venezuela to say you are a supporter of Chavez and his policies. That is not okay, and that's what has been happening in 20 years. So if anybody has made a coup in Venezuela, it's Maduro, who's staying in power by force because he has the support of generals and people at the very high ranks of the military that he himself has appointed. And frankly speaking, there is a lot of evidence out there that all these inner circle of Maduro are highly involved in very corrupt deals that make them enrich themselves. While, just to finish the thought, at the same time, we know that the middle and low-ranking military personnel are suffering as much as the Venezuelan people. They also cannot find food. They also cannot find medicines. They also have family members who have fled to other countries. So they know what's happening, but there's a lot of surveillance within the military and there's a lot of control. So it's very hard for them to take a step and to restore democracy without being punished, possibly in jail or or even worse. Danny, I think one thing that a lot of listeners of AJC Passport are wondering is, is this good for the Jews? What does this mean for the status of the Jewish community of Venezuela, which has been shrinking in recent decades, but remains several thousand strong? Well, that's a very good question, and I know that that's a question that the state of Israel really struggled in the past few days before they decided to actually join the international community and recognize Juan Guaido as the president. Um, Of course, the safety of the community is a first priority. 
As you said, the community in Venezuela have suffered a lot in the past 20 years. They've suffered anti-Semitic attacks. One of the main synagogues was desecrated around 2008 and, and nine. Um, there have been a lot of attacks that I would argue that are initiated by a very strong anti-Zionist sentiment that's coming from the very top of the pyramid in terms of government, both from Chavez and then Maduro. Now, I think that the community, um, I mean, I know people in the community. I was born and raised there. It's my community. I was very active before I met Aliyah. They are, of course, their first concern is how do we stay safe? We want to live here safely. We want to maintain our lives. We want to be able to keep our cash route and, and all these things. Um, so it's a very difficult situation for them. They maintained uh, relationship with the government as their right, as Venezuelan citizens. They are Venezuelan citizens, and as a minority, they should be protected, as in any democracy. And But of course, that the fact that um, this is happening, the fact that Israel decided to rightly so recognize Juan Guaido could raise concerns. I think, and I hope that the Venezuelan Jewish community will remain safe. They should be protected by any government as a minority. But as any other Venezuela, they've also been suffering a lot from the economic situation, from the humanitarian crisis. And that's the reason that so many of them have left. And my sense is that if there is no change in the foreseeable future, if Maduro is able to stay in power by force, unfortunately, we're going to see a much smaller community, um, much, much smaller community in the years to come. <laughs> that is not an optimistic picture. I mean, you said that you hope that they'll remain safe even after Israel recognized. I mean, do you think that it's likely that we're going to see new risks for the Jewish community of Venezuela or will they be facing the same risks and challenges of every Venezuelan and those are bad enough? Well, they're definitely suffering from the day-to-day -day hardships that every Venezuelan has. And that's the main reason that the Jewish community has tightened and become smaller what I was trying to say is that because of that, if the situation keeps worsening, a lot of Venezuelans are going to leave, including a lot of people in the Jewish community. You know, I can't be sure of how the government is going to react. I think they should be smart enough to understand that they should protect minorities. And so far, the Jewish community has lived under hardships as any other Venezuelan, but they thrived. And I, I think that as long as they stay there, they're going to thrive. But again, as it's going to happen with the rest of the population, if Maduro stays in power, a lot of these people in the Jewish community will execute their right to resettle somewhere else, and the community is going to become smaller. I expect uh, and I hope that there's nothing in particular that is going to attack the community as Jews that would be cruel and unnecessary. And I know and I hope that they are taking the necessary measures to remain safe. Danny, last question, and <laughs> I'm quite certain that you won't have a definite answer, but is this just the start of the latest saga, the latest chapter in the saga of Venezuela's challenges, or is it about to be the end of that saga? You know, is this a problem that will resolve quickly, or is this going to be a, a long-term slog? Right. Well, I'm an economist, so, you know, we're very bad at forecasting. <laughs> but, you know, I, I would say this. I hope that a change is actually coming for many reasons. You know, the Venezuelan opposition have tried in many ways, sometimes ways that are good and sometimes ways that are less good to start a new episode in the history of the country. So I'm saying this because there are people who can criticize past actions of the opposition, and that's fair. You know, we all can criticize things. Nobody's perfect. But I think this time it's different. This time is different because 
the position actually has a very coherent plan and strategy that is part of the constitution. What they're doing is completely legal. It's also different because for the first time in many years, they actually do have a very, very strong support from the international community, as we never seen before. And so the hope is that the regime is going to implode in some way. Implode, I don't mean this in a violent way, but I just mean that people who are supporters of the regime are going to start turning around, turning their backs to Maduro and the regime day by day, more and more. And we've seen some of that in the past few days. The military attaché of Venezuela in Washington, D.C., decided that he recognizes Guaido. Some members of the diplomatic corps of Venezuela who are around the world have also done the same. So we might be at the beginning of this domino effect that a lot of people are going to turn their back and then they're not going to have any other choice but to give up. So, But let me also give another reason why a pessimistic scenario is also not as likely. The pessimistic scenario is that, you know, they're going to stay in power forever. And we've seen some of that in the world, right? We know that we have Cuba, we have North Korea, we have countries like that that have managed to remain in power and affect democracy despite their high impopularity and despite the cruelty that they impose on their people. There's one very big difference. If you, and I'm a little bit extrapolating here, but just to give the idea, if you go ask a Cuban today, how was your day today? Were you able to find food? Did you eat enough? He would say, no, it was a bad day. And then if you ask that same person, how is your day going to be tomorrow? He said, well, it's going to be the same, like equally bad. If you ask a Venezuelan today how your day was today, he will say it was bad. I couldn't find food. I couldn't eat. I don't find my medicines. If you ask that person, how is your day going to be tomorrow? He's going to say it's going to be worse. Because mm-hmm. the situation in Venezuela is getting worse by the day. There's mm-hmm. hyperinflation. So your salary, every hour that goes on, it's worth less and less. There is less income to import food and medicine. So things are getting worse by the minute. So that's the big difference. Yeah. That this is a situation that looks, you know, at least in theory, unsustainable in the long term. So I think that there are many reasons to be optimistic that for the first time, it's kind of like all the stars have aligned so that the opposition is doing something legitimate, legal, following the constitution that is actually going to lead Venezuelans to restore freedom, restore democracy, and rebuild the country. Danny, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing these important explanations about what's going on in Venezuela. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? The Paralympics. Good for the Jews? The work of the International Paralympic Committee is grounded in the organization's principles of equality and inclusion. Making a mockery of the idea of inclusion, the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Mahathir Mohamed, a man who has said he is, quote, glad to be labeled an anti-Semite, tried to exclude Israeli swimmers from the World Para Swimming Championships, which were to be held this summer in his country. Fortunately, the International Paralympic Committee refused to be turned into a joke, prompted in part by the thousands and thousands of people from more than 70 countries who took action through AJC, the committee stripped Malaysia of the honor of hosting the championships and are now looking for an alternative location, one which won't exclude any athletes on the basis of their nationality or religion. 
perhaps they'd consider moving the event to the Middle East. Tel Aviv is lovely in the summertime. The International Paralympic Committee's commitment to inclusion is good for para-athletes the world over. And the Paralympics are good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.